So just one housekeeping thing. Today, after the service, since it's Christmas break for the school, we don't have to tear down, which is super exciting. Um, we will be doing some extra decorations for Christmas Eve, uh, but no teardown today. So I think for the next two weeks, which is wonderful. Wonderful. Um, we're in a series right now called The Wonder of It All, and we've been looking at the Christmas story through the Gospel of Luke, kind of moving through the first two chapters of Luke. And I wanted to open today uh, with the words of the song that we just, uh, that we had, uh, we just sang, sung, we just sang, um, in O Holy Night. Uh, so let's, let, me, let me read these. Just take these in slowly. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born. These are just beautiful words. They're old. Um, you sing those and you're reminded and inspired of just these beautiful hymns that come from the historic church. And, and when you read those words, they, they, and when you, when you sing them, I don't know if you felt that during worship, there's just something inside of your heart that moves. And, and when you think about the Christmas story, there's this, uh, there's this thing that resonates in us, this, this feeling that we have, this sense of wonder, this sense of awe of what God has done in this world. And I think when we talk about like what Christmas is all about and when we hear all these different messages, whether it's from the church or through culture, it seems like what, what people are always talking about what Christmas is about is belief. It's about what we believe. It's about putting your belief in something. Um, and we have different ideas of what you're putting your belief in. Um, but I wanted to, to, to say today that it's not just about cognitive belief. It's about it's about worship. It's about something that, that makes you fall on your knees. This thing in your heart just uh, leaps and rejoices. And when we think about what God is doing in the world to the Christmas story, I think that's, that's what our, our call is. Not just to believe, uh, but to worship. To, to have something resonate in our heart with our creator who has broken through history and is on the move and is working and through Jesus is bringing about the story of salvation. Um, I think when you go through some of the details of the story, you start to realize uh, why, why this creates such an amazement and this, this awe and this wonder. And when we hear the Christmas story, like the, you know, the children out there with, with the petting zoo right now, it's, it's a warm and fuzzy story, but it's also a story um, that, that's terrifying and, and full of fear and uncertainty. And, uh, and I want to kind of look at some of that today because I think that that leads us to not just belief, but to the sense of worship. And we've been going through Luke chapter 2, and I want to start in Luke 2 verse 1. And just uh, we'll kind of go, go through the, this uh, chapter. But it says the birth of Jesus, Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken to the, of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem. So kind of a... Uh, you know, boring way to start a story, talking about politics and taxation. Um, when, when Luke opens up this story, uh, we, we have to be reminded that Luke, Luke is a very detailed writer. Luke is a, he's a doctor, 
Uh, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts, and every detail means something. And, and what's interesting is when he's kind of telling the story of when, when God breaks into the world, when salvation comes through Jesus, he paints this kind of backdrop of the, what the world was like when he came. And the very first thing he says is, guess who was in control? Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus, uh, for some of you who know uh, who he is, he is the, uh, the great-grand-nephew of Julius Caesar, but he was his adopted son. His real name was Octavius. And if you know a little bit about world history, I'm a huge history nut. Like, I love this kind of stuff. Uh, some, maybe like 50 years before Jesus, there was uh, a civil war that broke out. And Rome was a republic. And, uh, and Julius Caesar was this kind of rising uh, leader who uh, took his army, it was this general, went up into Gaul, which is like modern-day France, conquered it, um, became very wealthy, came back, and started to consolidate power. And as he started to consolidate power, a civil war broke out between Julius Caesar. Um, there was a number of different characters that were in it, Mark Antony, Brutus, I think Elizabeth Taylor got involved at some point. Um, and this, this civil war breaks out. And uh, Julius Caesar basically kind of starts to emerge as, as the leader. And as, he, as people start to see like what's happening here, um, how he's, he's gaining all this power, nothing can stop him. He succeeds in everything. Um, his, fellow, his fellow politicians end up murdering him on the Ides of March, right? Julius Caesar is murdered. And, and kind of the power, again, another civil war starts, but the power gets passed to this adopted son named Octavian. And Octavian is just as ambitious as Julius Caesar. And Octavian, what we know is that he's got this, this huge ego. Um, he's super driven, ambitious. He's fearless, this great leader. And he comes to power. And, and as he comes to power, Rome is starting to hit kind of its, its zenith, its peak of, of power. Um, and they're, they're conquering new lands. They're consolidating power. And he's in charge of it all. And Octavian decides he wants to change his name to Augustus and kind of like petitions to the Senate, they allow him to do it. And Augustus is an interesting name because he comes from this guy named Julius Caesar who was so successful that people thought he was just almost like had divine powers. And people, especially in the eastern part of the empire, would worship the leader as, as someone who is divine. And as his adopted son, he takes this name Augustus. Um, Augustus means the majestic one. Can you imagine giving yourself that name? I, from now on, want to be called the majestic one. <laughs> the one to be respected. I saw another definition that said the increaser. And it, was, it had these divine qualities to it. So he, they allowed him to change his name from Octavian, which I think is kind of a cool name, you know, uh, to Augustus, the majestic one, Augustus Caesar. And Augustus ruled, ruled the Roman Empire, and they start this thing, the Pax Romana, um, the peace of Rome, but the peace came from destruction and power and oppression. And he's in charge when Jesus is born. He's ruling the world when Jesus is born. The most powerful man the West has maybe seen since Alexander the Great, maybe even more powerful than Alexander the Great, he's in charge, and he's calling himself the majestic one, the one who brings about the peace of Rome, the powerful one, the respected one, the increaser. And Luke says, salvation is coming into the world, and it starts in this story. But what's interesting is it doesn't come to Augustus's household. When God decides to work, when God is on the move, when God incarnates into this world in Jesus, he doesn't go for the powerful. It would have been easy, you would think, to come to the most powerful man in household 
and, and, and to put the rule of the reign of God in. He doesn't do that. The story continues. It comes into this family that has no power at all. And in fact, I would say they're powerless. They're this conquered part of the Roman Empire. They don't have any power. They don't have any influence. And Jesus is born into this powerless situation. Verse 4 says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So there we have this powerless couple who God has chosen to bring about salvation through. Then we have Joseph, who uh, is trying to follow orders. There's this census that has been called, and he has to go back to his hometown to register. Um, and for the census, probably what's happening is they want to know how many people are a part of this region of the empire so we can tax them. Um, you know, death and taxes are the two things that are sure in this life. And this time, if you don't pay the tax, you experience death. And so Joseph says, I know I need to get to my hometown to register, even though Mary is pregnant. And, it, and what we know is that the location is they move about 80 miles while she's pregnant. They, they travel 80 miles to get back to his hometown. And you can imagine uh, the, the trouble that that would cause, the inconvenience. I, I know um, when, we, when Marcy was pregnant with our kids, um, it's a lot. And, and it's a lot for her, too. Um, but <laughs> the, uh, you know, oftentimes, especially in the summer, it was like, let her just go and just soak in the pool and, uh, because it's so uncomfortable. And, and here, can you imagine the conversation where Joseph's like, Mary, we got we to gotta go on a trip. We need to travel. It's not like you can get in the car. It's not like you can order an Uber. Like, you're walking or possibly riding a donkey, which to me sounds worse than walking. And you're pregnant. And, and they're traveling 80 miles to get to this town to register. There's something interesting about this, too. Like, there's a little detail that Joseph is this descendant of David. Well, who's David? He's the, the mighty king of, of God's people, the king of Israel. The, maybe the greatest leader that they had. And there's this little nugget in there that this is a descendant of David. And what is this descendant of this great king doing? He's following orders from Augustus. There's this reminder in the story that this is a conquered people. This is a people that have been humiliated. They've, they've submitted. Uh, they, they are defeated. And in the midst of this, I know my wife is, is pregnant. I know that we can't travel. I've got to follow orders. And you hear this and you think, this is, a, this is just a bad situation for Joseph and Mary to be in. And then it says they get to their hometown in Bethlehem. And, and this is outside of Jerusalem. This isn't part of the, the great city. This is a small little town, a small suburb. And, and I find it so interesting that when, when they get there, you know, we always assume there's no room in the inn. Like, they got to the Motel 6, and there's, like, a no vacancy sign, like, you know, flashing or something. But, but what's interesting is, and, and really when you start to understand the language of this, it, it's probably not talking about, like, a, a commercial inn, uh, but a lot of houses would have, uh, you know, guest rooms. And, and my guess is if, if Joseph is from here, if this is his hometown, he probably has connections. He probably has family and friends. I don't know if anyone's going home for Christmas or if anyone's here because they're coming home for Christmas. 
When you come home, it's, it's always this kind of like, you're received with joy for the most part, right? Like there are those awkward situations like Christmas vacation when Uncle Eddie shows up, like, and, and he's like, oh, we didn't want to intrude. And the father-in-law's like, well, there's plenty of room. And they're all like, what are we doing? Like you have these situations like that, but for the most part, like if you're coming home, you would think there's this, this receiving of, oh, Joseph's back. And, his, and Mary's here. And by the way, she's pregnant. This is a, a culture that is defined by hospitality. And there's no room for them. You start to wonder, what's, what's going on with that? Because if someone showed up to our house, even if we don't know them, if their wife is, is that pregnant, we're trying to figure out how to make accommodations. Well, they do. We know that they go to this, this guest room. It could have been a cave. It could have been a room where all the animals were sleeping that some of the, the adults sleep in as well. But it's like, where is the chivalry? Right? Like, where are the, like, is it, wouldn't it be wise to maybe give up a master bedroom to allow her to have the baby? And if this is a culture that's defined by hospitality, what's going on here? We also understand that this is very much an honor-shame culture. And, and, and I don't know if this is the case, but as I'm reading into these details, maybe, maybe what's happening here, and this is an assumption, that people know the story about Joseph and Mary, and they know that Mary's pregnant before they're married. And in an honor and shame culture, I almost wonder if, if this story breaks out in this small town where everybody knows everyone else's business, and there's maybe this thought of we don't necessarily want to be associated with this. I don't know what's going on here, but Mary and Joseph have no room for her to have this baby. And I would say that this situation isn't just a powerless family. And, and I don't think Mary feels shame. I don't think Joseph feels shame. I think they know what God has called them to do but I have no idea how they are received by his home community and why they're laying this baby in a manger instead of a bed. They're in a very vulnerable situation. They're vulnerable traveling on the road. They're vulnerable giving birth in a place uh, that, that there's a lot of risk involved. And when God decides to send his son into the world, when God incarnates, when salvation plan comes. It comes for the powerless and vulnerable family, Mary and Joseph. The story is wild. Why would God do it this way? There's so much risk involved. Why not have some more certainty and things around it to make sure that this plan goes off well? And the story continues. Verse 8 says, the shepherds and the angels, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. I love that phrase. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So they had great fear. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. So this great fear that you're experiencing is going to turn to great joy. And I will be, it will be, that will be for all people. This is a message for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord, the Messiah in their language. You might say the majestic one, the respected one, the increaser. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. 
And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and they found Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Again, wild story. Again, angels like breaking, just appearing from heaven. When I was a kid, when I was a child, I would always say things like, God, my faith would be so much easier if you would just show up and, and say something to me. And then I would just know, and you could do it because you're God, so why don't you just show up in a way that I'm like, oh, you've broken through heaven, you're real, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I remember as a kid thinking, like, why doesn't God just do that? Like, when we run into, like, these huge major world problems and wars, why doesn't God just break through history and show up and say, here I am, or here are my angels, here's my message. Like, that would be so much easier. People would have so much more faith. God, why don't you just do that? Well, God does do that once. He does it a number of times, but he does it here, the angels show up. Heaven opens. The glory of the Lord shone around them. But what's interesting is he comes to a bunch of shepherds. Finally, like the thing I always wanted as a kid, just show up and show us that you're real. He shows up and he shows us that he's real, but he doesn't go to Augustus. He doesn't even go to King Herod. He shows up to these lowly shepherds. Are you kidding me? When you start to understand where shepherds are kind of in like the, like the society ladder, they're all the way at the bottom. And when you read about shepherds in the Old Testament, there's almost this phrase, it's almost like this joke that the Egyptians are kind of, they all, they're like, oh, we don't, associate with, we don't associate with shepherds. There's a story with, with Joseph in the Old Testament, the other Joseph in the Old Testament, and they're having this meal with the Egyptians, and he's planning this thing for his, his brothers to come in. And the Egyptians won't even eat in the same room with the shepherds because they're just disgusted by them. These shepherds are, are they, they live with animals. They watch over the sheep. They don't have a lot of influence in society. And God finally says, I'm going to show up and open the heavens and let everyone know. And he comes to the shepherds with this message. The shepherds are very insignificant, I would say. Why would, why would God do that? Why go to the ins, insignificant people with this message? And he does. The story of Christmas is about this powerless family that is super vulnerable. The message is told to these people who are insignificant, that God is on the move. And as we read back on it, we forget what that would be like to just experience that in the context, in the original, what these people are going through with these emotions. The shepherds are blown away. They go and they find Mary, and it's, everything is exactly as the angels had said. And what we find is that their response is proclamation and amazement and worship. And then what we find is that Mary, Mary is just kind of sitting back considering everything. It says she's treasuring all of these things up in her heart. She's pondering them, everything that the Lord is doing, that God is on the move through this powerless, vulnerable, insignificant situation. Jesus is coming into the world. 
I think this is telling us something about how God works in this world. But there's also something about how God enters our lives personally. He doesn't show up and do the thing that we think would be easy. Just go to Augustus and use that power to spread your message. He comes in a way that woos us, comes in the form of this baby, this child. I think for Mary, she would have considered this situation that's powerless and vulnerable and insignificant and realized that this is the way God can work in this world, and he is on the move. If she considered her story where the angel shows up, she's this virgin, yet she's going to have a child. She's got to travel 80 miles for this census. There's no room in the inn. There's no room in this extra, you know, there's no extra room for her to, to have this child. Everything that she's taking in and considering, and then, oh yes, of course, the shepherds would show up. This is who God would use. There's a sense of awe and wonder of how God is working in this story. Tim Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God, and he was talking about these different miracles that God does through Jesus in the Gospels, and and when you start to read the life of Jesus, what you find is so much of it is unconventional. The way of God working in this world, just not the way that we would do it, not the way that we would expect for God to do it. It's always unconventional, and yet it's always doing something, calling more out of us, stirring our hearts to wonder and awe. And it moves us not from just belief, but to actual worship, that we are a part of this story that can't just be simply man-made, that God is on the move. And Keller talks about these Uh, these miracles, kind of giving commentary on it. I want to close with this. He says, the most instructive thing about this text, however, what it says about the purpose of biblical miracles, they lead us not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe and wonder. Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce You never see him say something like, see that tree over there, watch me make it burst into flames. Instead, he used his miraculous power to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead. Why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease and hunger and death in it, but Jesus has come to redeem what is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we want is coming. This is the story of Christmas. The powerless the vulnerable, the insignificant. God is here, and he enters our story, and he brings about redemption and salvation. We don't always understand how or why, but he's turning this world into something new. He's healing and restoring and redeeming. This is the story of Christmas. So today, Tim's going to come back up, and we just want to create some time, not just to have our minds challenged to belief, but to have our hearts stirred to wonder. The story of Christmas, this miraculous birth of this child who would save the true majestic one. 
This is where our hope is placed. This is where salvation is found. And this is where eternity is lived. We come to this and say, Lord, the same way you entered this world, enter into us. We have language of it, of inviting him into our heart, of surrendering our hearts to him. But it creates this relationship where God starts to heal the things that are broken, to give us life that is truly life, that life that is life eternal. As we close today, we're going to invite you to the table for communion. Maybe you've never allowed Christ to just enter into your world. And you need to do that today. Just say, Lord, I've not had room. I've not made room for you for whatever reason in my heart. Today, I want to make room for you. Maybe today, it's just this reminder of, Lord, you're at work in my life and in this world, and I want to be on board with that. And I know it, it may not look uh, a, like con- a conventional way that you work, but I want to be in tune with the work that you're doing. Today, we come to the table and we partake in these elements that represent Jesus coming into the world. We take a piece of bread that represents body, and his body, his body that was broken open on the cross. We take a cup of juice that represents his blood, his blood that was shed on the cross. And this is what the incarnation is all about. That Jesus so loved the world that he came into the world and he gave his life so that we may have life. Today as we come to the table, let us remember and proclaim what God has done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for stories like this. For some of us, this is stories that are familiar. For some of us, it's new. But we're reminded that there is power in these words. And that the story of this first Christmas, Lord, was was wild. It was unconventional. You came to this powerless, vulnerable, insignificant situation, Lord. And your greatest plan came from it. And Lord, we want to meet with you today. The things in our life that feel powerless and vulnerable and insignificant. You breathe new life into us. The things that are broken, Lord, that you would bring healing and restoration. that you would challenge our minds to belief, but more than that, you would challenge our hearts to worship, to wonder, to awe and amazement. We're so grateful for Christmas and for your love. We give you this time. In your sons and we pray, amen.